Hello, Gretchen Bonas. I'm so excited to be bringing you this next episode, episode 20 of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. On this episode, I was lucky enough to interview Jennifer Friedman. She is the deputy public defender in the Immigration Defense Unit of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office and a member of the Public Defender Coalition for Immigrant Justice. She explains why immigration defense is also public defense, breaks down the good immigrant and bad immigrant false dichotomy, and shares how that narrative impacts the criminalization and demonization of asylum seekers. If you support the podcast, please, please, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, on Spotify if that's where you listen. We have not had, the podcast has not had a new Apple podcast review since February of this year. And so if you are a supporter of the podcast, one thing you can do today, check off on your to-do list is leaving a rating and review, five stars, and just sharing why you listen to the podcast, why you're tuning in. Also, another way to support is to become a patron. Patrons get early access to episodes like these and also exclusive access to the Lit Review Conversations, which are book club style chats with women of color where we focus on different texts and there's, I think, something for everyone in the Lit Review. So you can, whatever you can give is appreciated. $10, $5, $3, whatever you can give is very, very much appreciated and helps this one person podcast keep going. And uh, apart from that, you can also share on social media. You can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And I am a legal journalist now writing at Balls and Strikes, which is a website that focuses on SCOTUS and federal judges from a leftist perspective, kind of trying to give you critical bullshit free legal takes. And if you want to read my stuff there, then you the best place to find my stuff is on Twitter at Yvette Borja AZ. And that's where I share my stuff. You can also go to ballsandstrikes.org just to read directly from there. And thank you to our Sally Rivera Cohen, who is a Gachimona apoyadora. Folks who give $3 a month get a monthly shout out on the podcast. So thank you so much for being a Radio Gachimbona supporter. Yes, this, this is it. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Many of you have been listening since 2017. This is our fifth year of podcasting together. And I love every single one of the listeners. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview. Today, I am very excited to have Jennifer Friedman on the podcast to talk about 
the intersections between immigration law and the criminal legal system and the role that public defenders play in mitigating negative immigration consequences. Jennifer Friedman is the deputy public defender in the Immigration Defense Unit at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office and also a member of the Public Defenders Coalition for Immigrant Justice. And before we get into the nitty gritty of the subject at hand, I just wanted to say, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be thank here. You. Okay, so, you know, we kind of wanted to start with a high level. Let's take a step back and discuss what is that nexus of the criminal legal system and immigration and what is the role of immigration lawyers in the public defense world? And what does that landscape look like? Because it's quite a varied landscape. Not everyone has the model that the San Francisco Public Defender's Office has. So, Jennifer, could you please kind of break that down for us? Very big request, but <laughs> we can take it next. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the fundamental question is, you know, why have immigration lawyers in public defender's offices in the first place? And what is the role of immigration advocacy in public defense. And I think that that has become, I think it's become more and more obvious to folks across the country over the last, you know, several decades as the immigration criminal proceedings are increasingly enmeshed. And we see just an unending increase in the, you know, arrest to deportation pipeline. So when we're talking about having immigration lawyers working with criminal defense attorneys First of all, you know, a criminal, any criminal defense, public defender attorney has to remember that any arrest, even one that leads to dismissal mm -hmm. down the road, can impact a non-citizen's ability to stay in the United States, right? If they're here without an authorization in the first place, there are, you know, there's information sharing, immigration uses criminal databases to identify non-citizens and target for them right. for enforcement. Even folks who are here with authorization, with green cards, with DACA, with TPS, they can become at jeopardy for losing that status, even from misdemeanor convictions, or even in many cases after dismissal following, you know, a diversionary sentence or, or some sort of rehabilitative sentence. So as public defenders, we can't just think about the outcome of the criminal proceeding without also thinking about what the impact of that proceeding is going to be on our non-citizen status. And I think that, you know, today we were over a decade past the Supreme Court's decision uh, in Padilla versus Kentucky, and a lot of criminal defense attorneys, a lot of public defenders offices have in-house Padilla attorneys who are providing those consultations or have different ways of getting that expert information to the line criminal defense attorneys. Another thing that we're seeing more and more in public defenders offices and, and that I welcome is, you know, having removal mm -hmm. defense lawyers like myself housed in the public defenders offices. And the fundamental thing to remember right now is as the law stands, not since in deportation proceedings do not have a constitutional right to a right. free lawyer the way someone does when they're mm -hmm. accused of crime. We in the situation right now is if you can't afford a lawyer in deportation proceedings, often you don't get one. And especially for folks who are detained, who yes. are literally sitting in jails, yeah. finding and paying for a lawyer is especially difficult, right? They're not working. They're may often coming straight from jail. They may be detained in remote detention facilities, far from community mm -hmm. and family without a lot of organization and resources around. And, you know, when you're thinking about folks who are sitting in cages because they had contact with the racist criminal mm -hmm. legal system, I think that really demonstrates the way that deportation defense really is public defense. Yeah. And why it makes so much sense that with increasing 
frequency, local jurisdictions are recognizing that and moving towards providing some sort of funding for immigration attorneys, sometimes at public defenders offices like at mine. And, you know, in, in offices that have uh, deportation defense attorneys, you know, we're able to follow our clients from arrest through removal proceedings. And public defenders offices are uniquely positioned to understand and access the criminal record information to mitigate the consequences in the removal proceedings to take whatever work was done by the Padilla attorney in mitigating the harmful consequence of the conviction and try, you know, and harness those arguments, you know, to make an argument that something doesn't subject someone to removal, but also just the sort of classic public defender information, you know, mitigate harm, humanize our clients, you know, empower them to tell their own story, have, you know, stand up against a, uh, a federal system that's turning through cases just like pieces of paper and words on a page and really stand up and say, you know, this is my client, this is their story. And regardless of the likelihood of success on the other side, you know, setting forth a really vigorous defense. So I think that, that it's an important moment to really recognize and elevate the notion that deportation defense is public defense and that it's, you know, past time that, that we recognize that and that we, we fight really hard for increased funding through local jurisdictions, but ultimately from the federal government for funding for lawyers, for folks who are, especially folks who are detained mm -hmm. and who, who have found themselves facing deportation as a result of the arrest and deportation pipeline. Right. Well, also, so I do have to say that also people are detained just for being asylum seekers and... Um, entering without authorization. So I mean, I think it's worthwhile going through the history of criminalization of immigration actions because initially immigration cases were thought to be solely civil in nature and the case law for many years, which I just feel like for any human being who's had, you know, any kind of interaction with the immigration system, it just finds this so absurd on its face. But you know, the courts have said that deportation is not punishment. And that is the reason right. why there is no right to a government funded attorney in the way that there is for the public defense model. Um, and it's it's kind of become even more absurd over time because now actually there are statutes on the books that prosecutors are using to prosecute people who enter the border without authorization. And I just say that because there's such a wide swath of people that DHS is detaining. And it's people that come into contact with the criminal legal system in many different ways, as you say, through arrest and conviction. And then also it's, you know, asylum seekers who are trying to vindicate their legal right to seek refuge. And I don't really like making distinctions between immigrants as like, you know, in a way that implies that there's good and bad immigrants, because I really don't believe that. And, you know, for me, an asylum seeker is an asylum seeker, regardless of whether they entered without authorization or whether they presented themselves at the port of entry. And also, like, there's so many people who are, as you said, because the criminal legal system is racist, end up arrested mm -hmm. for reasons that like many people would find unfair. It's an interesting moment in history right now where we're seeing a lot of similarities between recent arrivals, asylum seekers who are just now right. flying across the border right. and folks with criminal convictions because they're That's both what I'm trying being, to get at. Yeah. You know, 
Absolutely. You know, we have millions of folks living in the United States without yes. authorization or with sort of status who have, you know, lived yeah. here for decades, you know, have families, you know, are a, a key part of, of our communities and our families. Mm -hmm. And those folks are what I think a lot of the, you know, good immigrant narrative mm -hmm. focuses on. And those are the folks and to have more sympathy from sort of the general public, right? And right now you've got sort of all the folks who are who are trying to cross the border now, especially in these in this moment where race and who's getting allowed, who's being allowed to enter you mean at the border versus who isn't. Yeah. 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 Well, while well, Haitians and Venezuelans and Cucubins are not. But I mean the 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 whole idea that that, that asylum seekers now there's that, that, that if we start letting some people in, it's going to, you know, lead to a, you know, an unmitigated disaster at the border. And it, it has a lot to do with the demon, mm -hmm. you know, it has a lot of echoes of the demonization of the folks that have um, contact yeah. with the criminal legal system here in the United States who are already, you know, longtime residents of the United States. And I think that what they have in common is that they, you know, that they're sort of the scapegoats right now in the uh, dialogue that's going on nationwide about an immigration system. And I think that a big part of why I like the framing of deportation defense as public defense is so powerful is because public defenders have always stood by those who are being mm -hmm. scapegoated, those who have the least amount of sort of sympathy in the public eye. And are used to, you know, fighting like hell, even when the discourse is stacked against them. And so, I mean, for all of those folks, right, folks with a single misdemeanor conviction to folks with, you know, serious, you know, criminal convictions, but who are still facing death or torture mm -hmm. if they're deported. Yesterday, folks who have been here for decades, you know, all across, everyone deserves due process in their immigration case, they all and everyone should be entitled to a lawyer. And if you can't find one, I think that we really, really need to push right now as a nation for a, a movement for a national right to counsel, which is being, you know, talked about as universal representation. And we need to also cont uh, continue to push Congress to increase funding for deportation defense. We need to push in our local jurisdictions for funding and expanded definitions of who we can offer services to as public defenders where that's an issue um, and really, you know, establish it, continue to build up a nationwide system, a uh, public defender system for people facing deportation to be able to provide universal representation to make sure that no one has to go up against the full force of the federal government without access to an attorney and no one has to face permanent banishment from this country family separation in a legal system that you don't know anything about in a, you know, in a language that you might not be familiar with without a, an attorney by your side to make, you know, to be help you present your, your case and to ensure that those who do have a legal right to stay are able to pursue that right. So I, the one question that I have about the universal representation push is, do you worry that in pushing for that, you will also reinforce the like mass deportation scheme that DHS has currently. I think that that's an important question to ask, but it's not. There's a lot I lay awake at night worrying about, and that this isn't one of those things, right? But it's an important thing to keep in mind and to keep thinking about, remembering, 
I'm not in this work. I'm not in this work to make it more fair, right? I'm personally coming for, to this work from an abolitionist starting place. And, and we need to work against, first of all, you know, abolishing immigration detention entirely. It's not yeah. necessary. Fighting oh, God. The Don't you start with the Biden versus Texas oral arguments where the starting assumption was that we need to detain everybody who arrives at the border. Yeah. Like the system is is there. The system's happening. The system is true, true, true. Right. Right. All families apart, whether, whether we're there or not, or whether not, which is like different than public and, defense, right? Because someone doesn't have a right. public defender, they can't have a trial. And, you know, having a lawyer, right. Having a lawyer makes an immigration proceeding a little less unfair, but it's still really unfair. Like we have an outdated, racist, broken immigration system with laws that do not reflect our, our reality, that do not reflect the global reality right now. And an outdated notion that there's some line mm-hmm. that you can just get in and wait in patiently, right? We have clients being driven by violence, mm-hmm. gangs, climate related mm-hmm. economic and food crises, lack of employment due to neoliberal economic policies, asylum seekers, you know, fleeing all kinds of civil unrest. On top of just our longtime community members, right, in in the United States, people who have raised up families here, people who have gone to school here, people who, you know, and and people who are facing real harm if they are removed. And, you know, our representation empowers our clients to make informed decisions about how to fight their case and what their options are. I'll also say that public defenders and by, you know, in immigration court and those who are fierce warriors for our clients are, you know, when we're out there employing our fierce, zealous advocacy, we're taking up way more of the system's time. Yes. Right? It's this way is the more argument. Yes. That like that- if everyone had their full due process, DHS would necessarily have to deport less people because it would take so long. Right. I mean, even just like presenting in, you know, a, a uh, an individual hearing on a application for relief to remain in the United States, right? The equivalent of a trial is going when you show up with a lawyer and you've got a witness list of six witnesses and you have an expert and you have an hour and a half long direct prepared for your client, right? That's going to take all morning. Sometimes it takes like six, you know, continued hearings and not only is that improving your client's outcome and improving the due process afforded to your client, but it's also mucking up the whole system, right? And things are taking slower. And those are all slots that they're not just steamrolling unrepresented, uh, you know, non-citizens through and deporting them without anyone making there. So we're fighting at every turn, make the government prove up the charges of removability are about our clients from the beginning, and then fight for removal. And it's like the difference in criminal defense between yeah. you know, just taking a plea deal, you know, just turning through plea deals versus someone who's taking everything to trial. And as lawyers, we're not making that decision, right? Like we still represent some folks, you know, sometimes the plea is right for a client, sometimes not sitting in detention and fighting all the way yeah. up to the Ninth Circuit for two years right decision mm-hmm. for the client but having a talented committee the lawyer standing next to you ready to fight on your behalf and go all the way to trial and you make the decision about whether you want to take them up on that over or not offer or not is absolutely better for that client and better for everyone else around them in my yes opinion. no i love that i think you made a really strong case for that What is the Public Defender Coalition for Immigrant Justice? And what is the coalition's goal? So 
On the eve of the Biden administration, we recognized a inauguration back in what would have been December 2020. We started, you know, we, we, we recognized a, a moment, an opportunity to put forward an agenda or a call to action to take action on behalf of our clients, right? And by our clients, I'm talking about folks who have who have contact with the criminal legal non-citizens who have had contact with the criminal legal system, folks who are have lived that deportation pipe pipeline, you know, those of us public defenders and immigration lawyers who recognize the way that those systems target black and brown folks in our communities and are inherently recreating the same injustices it from the criminal legal system again in the immigration system we really recognize a, a moment or an opportunity to call on incoming administration to take immediate and bold action on behalf of our clients and you know we felt that as public defenders across the country we were on the at the forefront of witnessing the devastation to our clients uh, to our their families to their communities that comes from this pipeline. And we were really, you know, hopeful that, that, that we would be able to add a meaningful perspective to the dialogue and, and fill not a void, but, you know, make more robust the dialogue around folks who, who are non-citizens with, who may have criminal convictions and who may have serious criminal convictions, right. And really fighting for the recognition of, of their humanity, mm-hmm. the same way do we do court every single day, but doing it on a policy level, doing it on a national level. So we came together as um, offices from, I think, over 14 states all over the, the country and released in right around the time that President Biden was inaugurated a a call to action with sort of 10 specific steps or values or, you know, actions that, that we were that we were hoping to see the administration take. And, you know, I at the time sort of imagined that this was going to sort of be a one-time deal, but the energy from our, you know, public defender offices across the country and the excitement that our voice was received by a lot of the folks working on policy on a national level helped us realize that this, you know, that we had an important voice, that we had, you know, a unique perspective that was going to be able to add something to the national policy conversation. And so we've kept going and it hasn't been easy because we're all public defenders, first of all, right? right. That's our so full-time busy. job. <laughs> right. And so doing you know, working together as a coalition to try to elevate the voices and the perspectives of our clients is, you know, all above and beyond. But it is something that we have kept trying to do ever since then and bringing sort of a public defender perspective to a, the national policy conversations going on around what we, the changes that we hope to see in executive action and policy change and all of the conversations in Washington. So what has the response been from the Biden administration? And are you hopeful that they'll meet your demands? <laughs> the <laughs> Biden administration. I think that there's so this many, the you know, that has already heavily critiqued the Biden administration. So don't be shy <laughs> if that is your position. I mean, I do think that there are a lot of really wonderful people in the administration. Really? With a the lot of, of people. I'm over that. Op- argument. 
Okay. <laughs> I will say that I, you know, I think first of all, one of the things that we that that, that we had asked for was a moratorium on deportations for for uh, a year. Fair, upon, which um, he did try and do. And he did try to do that. And so, and that was blocked by the courts. And I, I think that there has been a lot of opposition, but I will say that I, you know, I was just reviewing our first 10 things. And I think that that's the closest that we've come to any of the 10 elements being met. But I, you know, I, I think that the coalition is going to keep fighting and keep putting pressure in all stages and that we are going to continue being a voice out there, you know, talking about the importance of cutting, you know, funding for detention and continuing messaging and pushing for the inclusion or the exclusion of bans to, you know, including folks with criminal convictions anytime you're talking about relief for non-citizens. I think that there is still a great need for our coalition to continue existing today. And there would, you know, there would, there's nothing that would please me more for the coalition, for the, there to be no need right. for this voice and no need for the pressure to continue existing. But we're going to continue pressuring everyone to, to keep trying to, to take moves, to take steps to increase the opportunities for right. our clients. And so, um, to kind of paint the fuller picture of what's been happening, there have been conservative GOP-controlled states and attorney general offices that have been challenging basically all of Biden's um, progressive attempts at reforming immigration policy. And you mentioned earlier that there's already such a deep intertwining between the criminal legal system and the immigration system in the sense that states will share criminal databases with DHS, uh, there's a lot of state level collaboration that needs to happen actually in order for DHS to be able to deport the number of people that it does. And that kind of brings into the fore Texas, because Texas has been, I think, one of the most ardent advocates against any kind of progressive Biden immigration policy. And it is a position of the coalition that you are calling on DOJ to investigate Texas Operation Lone Star program. And so I wanted you to explain to listeners what that is, Operation Lone Star, and why it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, Operation Lone Star came to our attention as sort of a particularly egregious weaponization of the already existing collaboration between the criminal legal system and, and the immigration system. So, you know, Operation Lone Star is, as I understand it, a series of policies seeking to criminalize asylum yeah. seekers who are fleeing into the United States. But our focus, our, the Public Defenders Coalition for Immigrant Justice letter focused particularly on the trespass arrest component, which is what I'm going to be talking about. So, you know, Governor Abbott in Texas instituted Operation Lone Star as an attempt to attack and criminalize migrants coming across the border and, and targeting those folks for arrest, jail, and prosecution for the state offense of trespassing, right? Which is a like low level mm -hmm. misdemeanor. Start crossing the border and passing through private land. And in doing so, the state has created this sort of shadow criminalization mm -hmm. system for immigrants where they've invested an immense amount of money and state troops, you know, law enforcement energy 
into this profiling of immigrants coming through and, and using this entirely separate criminalization system to lock asylum seekers up. And, you know, it's, it's not about public safety. What, what it really is doing is uh, arresting thousands of asylum seekers for minor routine property offenses of crossing private land, you know, doing no more than, than, than walking. And what they've done in Texas is they've created separate criminal dockets. They've emptied out their own jail to hold folks in. They handpick judges. And it's really specially designed to ensure the prolonged detention of asylum seekers. And there's so many problems with the system. And, it, and as public defenders concerned about immigrant justice, we felt, you know, that it's a particularly egregious weaponization of the, of the criminal legal system to, you know, to put folks behind bars and cut them off from the rest of the world, cut them off from due process guarantees that are typically available to folks facing criminal charges in Texas, you know, under the thinly veiled premise of public safety when it's really just about putting putting immigrants in jail. And, you know, the the arrests, a lot of the Criticisms of the arrests include that they lack probable cause. Right. There have been a lot of allegations of entrapment or brown. sort of manufacturing. Yeah. Exactly. Or even being led onto private property to then be arrested or manufacturing the conditions necessary for arrest by erecting fences where there weren't offenses before. Um, there's a totally separate booking system. It's not the local jail where folks are, are generally booked. Oh, interesting. Um, and are being it's a it's an emptied out state prison if I'm not mistaken I'm not sure about that but there's wide reports of terrible conditions and insufficient food they have recruited and brought in retired judges just to oversee this Operation Lone Star system so it's not even going through the regular judges there is a whole different system for the appointment of criminal defense attorneys, you know, different standards. They're letting people do it from out of state. There's immense delays in your appointment of a public defender. People are reporting going months without having any contact with their lawyers. And it also has allowed for increased criminal sentences under state law. So they, they've elevated the offense of trespass from one level of misdemeanor to another to, to maximize the, the maximum jail sentence. And what the reporting is showing is that most of these cases, once they actually get filed, once they actually get a hearing, once they actually get before a judge... I've read that, you know, like 70% of them are being dismissed. Those that aren't dismissed, the typical sentence is 15 days in jail. But folks are spending months just sitting in jail waiting to be, you know, waiting to have charges filed in the first place, waiting to have a hearing, waiting to have contact with the lawyer. And it's it's just sort of, you know, this, this shadow system that isn't ha being subject to oversight. And which, by the way, is unconstitutional in the first place. 100%. So far as that plenary power that's that's like given to the federal political branches and states are to have nothing to do with it so that's why i do mention texas because texas is at a whole multi-pronged strategy to try and get itself to be like the head of dhs absolutely and i mean this is just one of the pieces of the operation lone star 
you know, there's there's all kinds of other publicity stunts going on in Texas, like the busing of folks to Washington, D.C. and 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 other folks. But um, as public defenders focused on immigrant justice, our coalition was particularly concerned about these, you know, mass unconstitutional arrests and violation of, of the due process guarantees for folks facing criminal convictions in Texas in a way that immigration status is being weaponized there. So that's why we, you know, in particular felt it was essential that we join, you know, our voices in the call for a federal investigation into what's going on there. I really appreciate that. Those are actually all the questions that I had for you. Was there anything else that we didn't get to touch on that you wanted to touch on? No, I, I think that's pretty much it. I, I'm excited to be here and to be able to share what uh, we've been doing as a public defenders coalition for immigrant justice. And um, if there are public defenders out there listening who are interested in joining the coalition, we have, you know, you can reach out to us. We have a website where you can read more about us. Our membership is open to any um, public defender institution that you know is authorized from your head folks to join and we are always interested in contributing and adding you know additional offices to our ranks love that this is absolutely so necessary and jennifer i appreciate you so much for taking the time on a friday afternoon to discuss this with me and i hope to have you back on the podcast again in the future to discuss more of your work Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. Thank you, Jennifer. Bye, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode.